Thank you, Brother Steve. And if your Bibles are open there, I encourage you to stay there just to give you a quick update. <clears throat> I missed you all last week, but God is working tremendously on behalf of Calvary Baptist Church and all of her ministries. I bring you greetings from a number of churches throughout the state of Virginia, as well as in the Maryland and other places. was in Washington, D.C., got to see some of the sites there. Got to even find out where Capitol Hill Baptist Church was. But um, we also have churches across Canada and really around the United States that pray for us and look out for us and lift up and give so generously to us. And so since I was last here, just to give you an idea, we're still waiting for the final count, but we've had in excess of $80,000 given to our ministry in the last 10 days from churches in the United States and Canada who have taken up love offerings, individuals who have given, and it is indeed humbling and amazing to be a part of this time in the life of our church and her ministries. And so I just want you to remember churches like Guatemay Baptist Church, where I preached last week, a little church about exactly the same size as this one, who together in their congregation gave money and raised over $20,000 American to give to us. Uh, so excited that we would be able to soon have a church to call our own. So I, I say that to you at the beginning of this because I want you to realize that part of the motivation of Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and the idea of these seven churches was to remind them not only of their strengths and their weaknesses, but in the face of trying times that they were not alone. Not only is God the Father writing to them, not only is Jesus the one who is the ultimate chief shepherd of the church, he is writing to seven churches, and it's all in one letter. And some scholars believe that likely the six other letters were also written to each of the other cities, so that they were reminded that we are not all alone. We are in this together. And it would have reminded them as well of the ups and downs, the strengths and weaknesses, because wherever you've got a group of people together... You've got sinners. I do premarital counseling. It's one of the happiest things I get to do as a pastor. There are many of the couples here that I've had the joy of doing it. And one of my favorite books to actually give young couples is titled, When Sinners Say I Do. Because it is definitely that. It's not two perfect people coming together. It's two imperfect people coming together, often with their imperfections. And so is church. Don't you find it fascinating that church is referred to so often in terms of either the body or family and all of the things that go on? You know, I, since I turned 50 this year, I really do feel like the warranty has expired and the body fights. And it seems like no matter how much sleep I get or how good I eat, stuff still aches, stuff still pains, and it causes me to have to give it far more attention. And the older we get and the bigger our families get, I was talking with my own mom and dad this morning, and my mom is now up there, and she's asking me some of the same questions over and over again, and she's, you know, and you, you, you just realize just the, the beauty, the love, the challenges, the mess that is family. And that's no different for a church. And I say that because as we come to the church of Sardis, 
I want you to remember this is the church where Jesus wants them to know only the gospel keeps your faith genuine or real. Only the gospel. In fact, you could say that Sardis, the, the com, condemnation to the church at Sardis, if you p- picked up on what Steve was reading, was they were perpetrators of a great fraud. You saw those two words in there, wake up, wake up. They thought they were alive, but they were dead. Now, thus far in this series, we have visited four other churches as we've come to this one. We visited the church at Ephesus, which was considered that main church. They were the church of loveless orthodoxy. They stood for everything except they didn't love anybody. They worshipped the stand more than their Savior. Then we traveled to Smyrna, one of only two churches that has given no condemnation, only compliment, and they were the church holding on to Christ as they faced such dire persecution. Then we have these three churches sandwiched in the middle. Pergamos, the church on the verge of compromise. The last time I preached a couple of weeks ago, the church of Thyatira, where they were in the throes of compromise. And now we come another 30 or 40 miles southeast of Thyatira to the city of Sardis, which I would say is a church now dead in their compromise. The most glorious of cities of Asia is considered Sardis, but much of its splendor lay in the past. The city was really a tale of two cities. A large section lay in the Hermas Basin, but the Acropolis was partly on top of, are you getting ready for this? A 1,500 foot precipice, and on three sides, it was unapproachable. And that was the source of one of their greatest prides, and yet was their Achilles heel. It was considered, the city of Sardis, almost impregnable. But twice, once in 546 B.C., And again, about 300 or so years later in 214 B.C., when their guard was down and they were facing armies, they guarded all of their walls, but because they thought that one side that was 1,500 feet, that they just took it for granted and said, we're okay. And in both cases, people scaled those walls, snuck in, actually opened the city gates, and caused the destruction of the city, not once, but twice. In fact... By the time Revelation is written, a cliche that was capturing Sardis came to stand for achieving the impossible. That's what was definitely talked about amongst them. So the city was all about, are you ready for this? Because I think this sounds familiar, the good old days. They were looking over their shoulder. They had been destroyed by an earthquake in AD 17. They were only a shadow of their former greatness. And yet, they spoke and acted like the days of old, but everything and everybody knew they were nothing like what they thought. The historian Ramsey would describe the city as a relic of the period of barbaric warfare which lived rather on its ancient prestige than on its suitability to present conditions. And as you might imagine, James Hamilton says, these two famous events make it clear that Sardis was a place known for being twice captured at precisely the place where their supposed strength of the city was due. And so what, are, what am I saying to you and I this morning? I want us to realize this. The overriding message to the church of Sardis, the overriding message to the church of Calvary and Kilbride and downtown and Northern Cross and to every church in this city is this. We need to be vigilant as churches. P. 
Peter tells us that Satan is like a lion roaring around. He disguises himself as an angel of light, Paul told the Corinthians. Satan knows better than anybody where we are unguarded, and it is his desire to destroy us. You need to realize this. And yet, in the message of this letter, he says to the, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus Christ wants that church to know, and he wants us as a church to know, that he is the one who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, and those symbolize two things, God's watchful and empowering presence, and thus he has the authority to say, hey, wake up, know where you're weak. Know where you've let your guard down. Know where you're too cocky. If you've noticed, of the city, seven cities written to in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, three get a commendation and a condemnation. Two receive no condemnation at all. Smyrna we've already looked at. And by God's grace, if we have our first service in our new church next week, I am so thankful that the church letter we're looking at is the church of Philadelphia because that is the church who receives this message, a message of a mission. And I can't think of any greater sermon to preach to a church on our inaugural service of a facility that we've been praying for, not only in the last years, but really for 20 plus years of the history of Calvary Baptist, we can say God has given us a building, not just so we can simply lock ourselves inside the building, but because we've got a mission. We have a mission. And then there are these three churches in the middle, but two churches receive no commendation. They only get condemnation. Many of you know that Laodicea is one of them because there's been lots preached and written and read about Laodicea, but often Sardis gets overlooked. Sardis, which is the church that had no persecution from the outside and was fighting no heresy on the inside, it simply existed and yet it thought it was alive and well. Ouch. Religiously, Sardis was fascinated with both death and immortality. Most of their pagan worship dealt with the fertility cycle and bringing life out of death. But as always, I want you to see how Jesus Christ presents himself. And on a personal note, I have to tell you, I've studied these churches. I have been a fan of Revelation most of my life. But over the last number of weeks, I have seen both myself and even our church in some ways, in each and every one of these letters. But this church, Sardis, and its message, it really strikes a chord of truth. There's a, a message of both rebuke and challenge, like none that we have studied this far. And with only two left, it may well prove that the church of Sardis, not Laodicea, the church of Sardis may best embody, in general terms, the church of today. And so what I want you to realize is Jesus says to this church, wake up, wake up. And by the way, that's not wake up towards government or COVID. That's not wake up to whatever the cultural catchphrases are of the day. Rather, the call to the church of Sardis is to wake up to the gospel, to the gospel. I'm old enough to remember when Steve Green's song, People Need the Lord, was popular. We don't hear it as much now, but the subject is no different. The census of St. John's was just released, I think it was this past week. One of the most heartbreaking new updates in the census 
was that now in the city of St. John's proper, which now is estimated to be somewhere about 110,000 just in St. John's proper, one in four, 26,000 now say they have no religious affiliation or faith of any kind. That's the highest in the history of the existence of this city. 24,000, 24,000 or 26,000? Somewhere in there, right? Okay. But almost one in four now says, I have no faith and no religious affiliation whatsoever. But notice how Jesus addresses this church in verse 1. He says, I am the author and I am the answer. If you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus is not only the author, he's also the answer. And too many of us in Christianity today, we look and we think that Jesus is the author of the Bible. Jesus is an option for the way we can live or approach life. Many churches tragically think Jesus is our mascot, but few of us anymore believe that Jesus is truly the answer. Sir, he says to them, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Christ begins by saying, once and for all, I'm the one who controls both the Holy Spirit and the messengers of the church. I'm the one in control. We've already learned that the seven spirits of God come from Revelation chapter 1. They're allusions as well, by the way, to Isaiah and Zechariah. Remember, seven is the number symbolic of complete perfection. So Jesus is telling this church, he's telling us, I am the one who controls and sends forth the Holy Spirit of God. You can pray, you can dance, you can sing, you can have your favorite verses, you can do whatever you want, but ultimately, the presence, the power, and the working of the Holy Spirit of the living God is under the mighty reign of God the Father and God the Son. And the role of the Holy Spirit is not to be manipulated, not to be called upon like we're calling a genie out of a bottle. The role of the Holy Spirit is to empower and ultimately to point us to Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin, to tell us what is truth, and to remind us and motivate us to trust God over anyone and anything else, including ourselves. What Jesus is saying is that it's he who directs the work of the earthly witness of the church. There can be no power apart from the Holy Spirit's power in any church. Amen? Well, that was weak, but we'll go. All right? So, unlike the city of Sardis, and apparently unlike the church in Sardis, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who's fully alert. I'm the one who's fully informed. I'm the one completely aware of all that takes place in heaven and on earth. And as the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars, nothing escapes his notice. And he calls his people, he calls us to wake up and take notice of this. Because notice what he says in verse 1 as well. He says, I know your works. Because then the answer, Christ says the answer says, your name is fake. You're fake. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a young person in my senior year of high school and my first couple of years of university, that was like the ultimate bad thing to say to somebody. You're fake. They're fake. She's fake. He's fake. If you, that was like the ultimate insult. Oh, they're phony. They're fake. 
So you can imagine when Jesus says, I am the one who knows all things. I'm the one in control of all things. And he says, I know your works. You have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. This church had a reputation. People in their circles talked about this church in a very good way. Other churches and other Christians were not only impressed with this church, they talked about it. They wanted to be like them. This was an active church. But Calvary, as we are on the precipice of making another major transition in our history, activity alone does not constitute obedient fellowship with Christ. Simply being busy doesn't mean you've got a relationship. This church had wonderful buildings. Attendance was up. Their programs were second to none. The Sunday school was great. The worship was top-notch. The pastors were polished. The smiles were million-dollar ones. Yes, this church looked successful. The membership was very proud of what they had accomplished. But Jesus says, I know your works, and you think you're alive, but you're dead. And he's saying, listen, what I think is what counts, not what men think. I tell the men and women of mile one all the time when we get compliments. C.S. Lewis tells the story that once he was complimented by someone at a store because he was all dressed up and everything and the store clerk talked, told him how handsome he looked and how put together he was and he went out and he told his dad and his dad said, son, compliments are like perfume. Take a whiff but never swallow it. And this is what we need to realize. Jesus says, he who was in control of the Holy Spirit, he who is the control of the leadership of the church and to whom the leadership is accountable to, it is he alone who controls. And we must ask ourselves, why did they have it so good? When you think of Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira, who seem to be facing all kinds of persecution, why didn't Sardis face it? And most scholars believe that what was happening was that Sardis, who was not fighting with Rome, Sardis, who was not fighting with the Jews, likely so assimilated themselves, lined themselves up with Judaism, because Judaism was an approved religion of Rome. In other words, they had a lot of God talk, but not very little confession of Jesus' name. And thus, they looked good, and nobody hated them. I think one of the worst indictments to the modern church is... We often ask, does the city of St. John's hate us or love us? And the truth of the matter is, I don't think they really do either or. I often wonder how many in the church of St. John's even know we exist. Because we're simply blending in. Let me share four warning signs of a church in danger of death, being alive but dead. When it begins to worship its own history, its reputation or name or the names in the church... When a church is concerned with form more than function and life. When it is more concerned with numbers and noses than with the spiritual quality of life it's producing in its people. When it's more involved with management than with ministry or with the physical over the spiritual. And I say this to you as we are about to be gifted one of the most incredible gifts in the history of our church. As we move over and be able to say, this church is our own, and it should be the final resting place, Lord willing, of Calvary Baptist Church for at least decades. But if you think that's the end, I say, no, it's just the beginning. This building that God has gifted us with should not be, oh, we've arrived. 
No, it should be, thank you, Lord. Now, fill it with souls and use us to do it. The church had named itself alive. Grant Osborne says, it's a sad thing when the only accomplishment of a church is what it names itself, especially if the reality shows that the name to be a lie. Sardis was all about its reputation. They seemed solid, worthy enough to onlookers, but in the sight of God, they were thoroughly defective. John Stott says, they had a form without prayer, reputation without reality, outward appearance without inward integrity, show without life. And one of the most haunting quotes I have ever quoted, I've done it before here at Calvary, I'll say it again, Christianity began on Palestinian soil as a relationship with a person. It moved to Greek soil and it became a philosophy. It moved into Roman soil and it became an institution. It moved onto British soil and it became a culture. It moved onto North American soil and God forbid it became a business. Is that true? How much we talk about stuff. We demand to be in the know. We get excited about carpet and paint and building sizes and protocols. How come and when was the last time we cried over souls? We fight over budgets and programs and we try to get more out of our business meetings than our prayer meetings. One man says, whoever speaks only of God but seldom to God easily leases body and soul to idols. The Christian thus places his whole future in jeopardy by a stunted prayer life. I know this because I've been guilty of it. One of the hardest lessons I have ever learned, and I'm still learning, is that all the Christian activity in the world, if it's not an expression of love for God and for others, is a hollow mockery, and it's simply us being fake. And the call is to wake up. The call is to wake up. Daniel Dickard this week said, a church built on individualism looks externally appealing and initially hides its foundational flaws. But over time, it will crumble under the weight of selfish preferences Pragmatic customs, consumeristic expectations, and long-held traditions at odds with biblical truth. And so Calvary, what is Christ's remedy for spiritual life? How do you bring death to life? Look at verses 2 and 3. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your works complete, not found your works complete in the sight of God. Then he says, remember what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. And if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And so Christ's remedy is these five commands. Write them down. Number one, be watchful. Be watchful right now in your life. Right now, in your life, take a moment in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your business, in your workplace, in your classroom, in ever it is in your life, in this church, right now, ask yourself, where is your guard down? Where have you let your guard down? It means show yourself. He says, be watchful. 
Christ is saying, change your ways. Show yourself to be spiritually vigilant. These professing Christians had allowed themselves to be seized by things of lesser value. Don't forget what had happened twice to this city. They had let their guard down, and it not only cost them their life, it cost them the lives of others. Christ told his disciples and the crowd listening in Matthew 24, so always be ready because you don't know the day the Lord, your, the Lord, your Lord will come. Remember this, if the owner of the house knew what time of night a thief was coming, the owner would watch and not let the thief break in. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at a time you don't expect Him. So he says, be watchful. But secondly, he says, revive your faith. Notice what he says to them. I love this. He says, remember what you have heard, received and heard. Revive your faith. <laughs> John Wesley once said, give me 100 men who fear nothing but God, who hate nothing but sin, who know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I will shake the world. That's about what's inside this room. My dear friends, if you are here this morning and you name the name of Jesus Christ, if you know beyond the shadow of a doubt you are a child of God, if you are here this morning and you have repented of your sin and Jesus is indeed the Lord of your life, then the message to Sardis is this. Wake up. Wake up. And join together as a body, as a family, in obedience to the Lord of our lives, to the one who controls and gives the Holy Spirit. The time for worldly Christianity is over. How dare we mock baptism? How dare we mock the Lord's table and who it stands for by pretending to be something we're not? How dare we pretend to be in love with Jesus while practically hating those for whom he died? How dare we participate in communion when we're not in communion with Christ and with each other? And so we've got to take this opportunity today to do exactly what Christ told this church to do. Revive your faith. If God be God, what did Elijah say on Mount Carmel? If God be God, then serve him. How long will you go and waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. Jesus said that their works were not perfect. It means they weren't complete. Just like the unfinished temple, these churches' works were not complete. Why? Because they were done in their own strength. When I was down in Houston, I met a pastor. I had breakfast with him. He pastors a large church. I'm not going to name it because many of you would know it, and some of you probably will know it, so I'm not going to name it. But when we had breakfast, the guy was really sober and very quiet when we had breakfast. And I asked him, you know, if something was off and stuff. And he said, well, I spent the last week with an underground pastor from China. This was back in 2018, so before COVID and everything. And he said, I, I, I spent the whole week with this Chinese pastor going around all of Houston, introducing him to other churches. And God had done so much. But he said, the longer we spent time together, the, the more quiet the Chinese pastor got. I finally asked him what he thought of the church here in Houston, and he said, I'm amazed at what the church over here has been able to accomplish 
without the Holy Spirit. So he says, be watchful. Revive your faith. And he says, remember and return. Remember your salvation and return to it. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. They were to remember the gospel. They were to remember the gospel. I read this past week, when Jesus calls the church in Sardis to remember what they've received and heard, it seems to be calling them to remember the way they received and heard it, the gospel. James Hamilton says, Jesus calls the church in Sardis to remember the gospel, to keep it and repent. The Christians in Sardis should repent of their avoidance of confessing Jesus and should keep the gospel by confessing his name. Actually telling people who Jesus is, what Jesus said, what it means to be a Christian. And remember, if it is the spirit of the living God. Jesus decided that the power of his church would not be behind a curtain any longer. Remember when he said, it is finished, the Holy Spirit split the curtain between the holy place and the holiest of holies in the temple. And no longer would it be behind a curtain. The Spirit of God resides in believers. His mission gives us life. That's Romans 8, 9. His Spirit lives in us, 1 Corinthians 6. His Spirit leads us, Romans 8. His Spirit produces spiritual fruit, Galatians chapter 5. His Spirit gives us gifts. His Spirit promotes unity. The Nicene Creed says that the Holy Spirit is both the Lord and the life giver. John Stott said, it is the Holy Spirit who can breathe life into our formal worship and can animate our dead works until they pulse with life. He can rescue a dying church and make it a living force in the community. And I don't know about you, but that's what I long for for our church. No matter how big or small, no matter how influential or not, I long for a day when the mayor of our city will say, I fear the prayers of Calvary Baptist Church than the armies of China. I don't know if I like them. I definitely don't agree with them. But man, when they pray, they talk to God. Now imagine if more churches in our city did it. Imagine if we did it. If I did it. Notice he says next, hold fast, keep it, hang on to it, never let it go. Paul said unto the Corinthians, I've determined not to know anything among you save this, Jesus Christ and his, his crucifixion. Have I, have you, come here today claiming to be right with God? Claiming to be right with our fellow Christians? But because of sin or guilt, or grudges, or unbelief, or doubting, have we caused the Spirit to be sad and even to hold back? We need revival. And how do we get revival? Notice what he says next. Repent. (laughs) Repentance is a bad word to say in the 21st century. We often confuse repentance with, I'm sorry. We tried to teach our kids to do this. We 
try to teach ourselves, that Debbie and I tried to do this in our marriage, is not to say, I'm sorry, but I apologize. You see, when we say, I'm sorry, normally what we mean is, okay, I've said something to you, I'm sorry, and you're now in a contract with me to say, oh, it's okay, I forgive you and all as well. But when you say, I apologize, an apology is to say, I, I screwed up. I failed you. How can I make it right with you and be right with you? Imagine if St. John saw a group of Christians starting here where we were more concerned about I apologize than I'm sorry. Because repentance is I apologize. It's shouting out, please forgive me, Lord. It's a commitment to change on the basis of a heart of love. I'm ashamed at how many times I've said I'm sorry, Lord. Almost, even while I'm saying, I'm sorry, Lord, committing the same sin over and over and over again. If you want to know what God has been actually working on my heart lately, it has been my overemphasis on grace and my underemphasis on mercy. See, I think we love grace because grace is when God gives us stuff, right? Grace is unmerited favor from an unobligated giver. And yet, actually, when you read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, what always kind of is the predecessor of grace is mercy. The psalmist said it was the mercies of the Lord that were new every morning. It it is over and over again that we are shown mercy because what is mercy? Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. And how much of my prayer life is there based on grace. God, give me things that I don't deserve versus thanking God in worship for his mercy. Now, Hebrews tells us we are to go before the throne of grace to find help and mercy and grace in our time of need, right? But you are never going to ask for grace with the right attitude if you don't first understand the mercy that allows you to be there in the first place. And this is what the letter to Sardis is. And then notice in verses 4 and 6, very quickly, Christ's promise. He says, I will give you a white garment with much better value. Now, you have to realize, the white garment was a thing in Sardis. It was a thing in Sardis. The Jewish community of Sardis was known because of their white robes. And they, it is likely that the church of Sardis was avoiding persecution because they were cuddling up to the Jewish community. They would talk about God. They had what we call Christless sermons, where you talk about God a lot, but you never talk about Jesus. And so they were living this life of Godness, but not confessing Christ. And it's likely because many people believe that they also wanted to wear these white garments. And Jesus says, hey, I will give you a white garment that's above every other white garment. O breath of life, come sweeping through us. Revive your church with life and power. O breath of life, come cleanse, renew us, and fit your church to meet this hour. He says, I will not only give you this white robe, but he says, I'll give you a name that they can't erase. Now, again, you've got to realize what was happening. If you actually study the church of Sardis in the first century, in the Jewish books there, they found one of the largest Jewish communities of these Asian churches was here in Sardis. And they actually have found documents where they write and say, they talk about one of the penalties of someone who violated their Judaism was to erase their name from the rolls. And so Jesus says to the church at Sardis, listen, put on a robe that I'm going to give you and know this, I will give you a name that will never be erased. 
The world can erase your... Guys, do I have to prove it to you? Cancel culture is everywhere. You get on the wrong side of culture and they want to erase you from existence. Ban you from social media sites. Shut you down. Jesus says, listen, you stand for me. You trust me. You lean on me. You bring your hurts, your failures, your questions, your doubts to me. And I will give you a name and no one will erase it. And so he says, I'll give you an inerasable name in the book of life. And so what do I want to say to you as we finish up? I want to say to you this. I want to first and foremost ask you, do you know Jesus? I want you to realize, church, a few years ago, a very famous spiritual author named Rob Bell, who prominent Bible teacher, changed his beliefs and his doctrines, changed his beliefs on hell, changed his belief on everything. And I want you to know, he didn't change his beliefs because he studied the Bible more. He changed his belief because that was the only way for him to be accepted by the world. If you tell me you've studied the Bible more and you believe less in God, you're not studying the Bible right. That's the bottom line. So the early church had few resources. They had no political power, but they turned the world upside down because Jesus was their resource. The Holy Spirit was their power. We often talk about growing the church as if it's up to us, but God grows his church, not us. And so perhaps maybe you're here this morning and you've not openly embraced the gospel of Jesus because maybe you're afraid of what your family will think. Maybe you're afraid of what it'll do to your reputation. Maybe you think that you'll be okay drifting through life, loosely associating with the church, avoiding any open confession of them, actually having some convictions. According to Jesus, that's not life, that's death. But if you'll not openly confess him as Lord, then you will meet him as judge. And I cannot do justice to this passage if I didn't ask every man and woman here, do you know Jesus more than just in a hobby or religion? Do you know him? Christians, do we have the appearance of life while in reality we're dead? What is it about your experience that would prompt Jesus to say to you, wake up? At what place on the wall of your life are there no guards inviting the enemy's attack? Are there things in your life or mine that have the appearance of godliness, which Jesus knows only result from a compromise somewhere else? Are we ready to be a real church? To be real Christians? To have real marriages? Be real families? Be a real group of people, diverse in age and outlook, spiritual maturity, economic attainment, phase of life, even opinions. But for the sake of Christ and his gospel, we will lay it all before him and say, Oh God, you are my God, and I will ever live for you. That's the question. Wake up, church. Wake up to the one who will give you a robe that no one can take away, to the one who will give you a name that no one can erase, who will now, as we'll see next week, by his grace, give us a mission that even the gates of hell can't stop. Let's pray.
Father God, dear Savior, I pray that the men and women of this church, my own family included biologically as well as spiritually, to the men and women who have watched online, that if there is anyone here that doesn't know you as Savior and Lord, that they would not rest or stop or be at peace till they know you. Lord, I pray for us as Christians that we will be brave enough, courageous enough to ask ourselves, am I alive? What areas of my life are dead? In what areas of my life am I clinging to my self-rule? What I want, when I want it, how I want it. Lord, thinking that you're just going to wink at all these things. Lord, I am overwhelmed by your grace. But help me to worship under the glorious, glorious majesty of your mercy. Help us as a church to realize how much you have forgiven us so that we will gladly extend and give grace to each other where we'll not be afraid to admit I'm weak or I'm wrong. And Lord, we can shock the world and rebuke Satan because we will not allow the world's ideology to infiltrate these walls. In Jesus' name, amen.